Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I am joined by a guest for this episode. His name is Matt Kerr. Matt is a triathlete who I recently started getting interested in following because he sort of burst onto the scene a bit with winning the 30 to 34 year old age group world championship at the St. George Ironman just a couple months ago. But what also made Matt intriguing to me was he follows a low carbohydrate diet and has documented kind of his trajectory into the sport and where his fat oxidation rates kind of have started at and where they are now. So obviously he has the training component that is going to be working towards those improvements, but also the dietary shift. And he uh, most recently produced a fat oxidation rate above 1.8 grams per minute. So he is safe to say a fat burning machine. And I wanted to hear about a variety of different things like what got him into triathlon in the first place, coming from a background in swimming, what a background in one of the three sports that are included in triathlon does to the way you structure your training and your racing approach. Do you lean on that event or is it something that you can sort of ignore maybe a little more than the others? I want to kind of get an idea of kind of how he looks at that. Uh, I also wanted to just hear how he structures his training, generally speaking, like what type of approach is he taking when he decides at the beginning of a season or the beginning of a training block to uh, structure the way he's preparing for the race. Uh, I'm really interested in that sort of stuff too, because with triathlon, you're getting some pretty lengthy timeframes out there with the top ends of the field finishing, you know, oftentimes in the like high seven, eight, nine hour range. Uh, so it is a lengthy endurance event. So there is some crossover to, to ultra marathon in terms of how people are approaching these things from a training strategy and a fueling strategy as well. So along with the training aspect, I really wanted to know like what Matt is doing nutritionally to produce those high fat oxidation rates and how that is playing out in his workouts and racing strategy and things like that. So we also dove into that side of things like how is he structuring his diet in terms of carbohydrate usage when and how strictly is he tracking that and that sort of thing and then ultimately how is he doing that or how is that translating to his fueling strategy on race day so we get into all that stuff as well as his uh his race at saint george ironman world championships and get a peek at what he's got coming up and targeting which is going to be something i'm excited to follow down the road is his race coming up at the Kona Ironman later this year. So that'll be our chat today with Matt. Before we get rolling, though, just a few quick announcements. If you want to get a hold of some of the podcasts that I've recorded and yet to release, those are available on the show Patreon page. Right now on the show Patreon page, there are a couple sitting there. One is my interview with Kara Collier. Kara is a dietitian who has a big focus in blood glucose response and is very into the weeds with continuous glucose monitors. So I wanted to chat with her about just where that is at now in terms of both public access and utility in terms of wearing a like, continuous glucose monitor. What can you look for? Uh, what are some you know ways to maybe properly use it and take that information and implement it into either your just healthy diet or into your lifestyle if there's athletics and things included in that. So Kara was a fun chat for that. That's up on the show Patreon page. Also, there is my chat with Alan Argon. 
Alan is a uh, is someone who I wanted to talk to quite a bit about things along the lines of uh, general nutrition, but also just like protein is something he's really tuned into. I wanted to get his take on fiber and where are we maybe under or over estimating like recommendations with that? Like, what does the research actually say? How important is it? And that sort of thing. I also just want to talk generally about his view of nutrition for people, because it gets complicated. I think when you look at things like recommendations and what, uh, the, the data would suggest on paper you maybe eat versus what is actually going to work in real life with individuals. And I think Alan has a really interesting, uh, very open-minded take on how individuals structure their nutrition and find their path to health. So that was a fun chat with Alan, both those up on the show Patreon page. If you want to check that out, you can head to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO. And there, there will be links to the show Patreon page, as well as other support options for the podcast if you want to do that. Um, if you want to support the show, but monetarily isn't the way for you, a great way to help me is to like, subscribe, and share the episodes you listen to and enjoy. If it's with your friends and family, great. On social media is another great spot. Any of those things go a long ways to helping me grow the show and is greatly appreciated. Also coming up on the interview side of the podcast, I've got a couple guests scheduled for next week. One is Taylor Sittler. Taylor is also another person who is in the weeds with continuous glucose monitors and that sort of thing. So that's going to pair nicely with my interview with Kara. I will try to ask some different questions or dive a little deeper into certain areas. So if you do have CGM related information you would like me to touch on or ask uh, Taylor about that, feel free to send that over. Um, later that week, I have Vinny from the Pain Academy coming on the show. Vinny has a very interesting story. He had some issues in his life where he essentially broke his back. And rather than just giving up, he worked himself back through all those hurdles and is now actually preparing for ultra marathons. So I want to hear more of Vinny's story because admittedly, I don't know a lot about it other than some of those, like those bullet points, but it sounds like he's got a story worth hearing. So I'm gonna chat with Vinny next week as well. So those two episodes should be up on the show Patreon page by the end of next week. If you're looking to get your hands on those early, otherwise they will be coming out sooner rather than later on the main podcast platforms as well. Um, also, I will be doing some solo podcasts along the way, along with those interviews. So if you have topics or questions you would love for me to address in one of those episodes, feel free to shoot me a note. You can send me an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com or reach out to me on one of my social media pages. Uh, Instagram is at Zach Bitter, Twitter at ZBitter, Facebook at ZBitter Endurance, and TikTok at Zach Bitter. So those are some spots you can check in with me if you have those questions, send them my way. I will put them in the list of topics to cover, questions to answer in some of those solo episodes. Also, finally, if you are local to Austin or happen to be passing through Austin and want to meet up, I am hosting a group run now on Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. It is called the Outliers ATX Run Group. If you go to Instagram at Outliers ATX, 
You can find details about when and where we meet up. It has something for everyone in terms of being able to come. If you want to come meet up and just go for a walk, you can do that. If you have your family with you and you need to push a stroller, we have options for that. Right now, we have a two-mile walk run. We have a four-mile run, and we have a six-mile run that we are doing on Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. with that. So please come. Bring friends, family if you want. That is Outliers ATX on Instagram is the way to check it out. And if you have any more questions about that or you're having a hard time finding that, feel free to shoot me a note and I would be happy to point you in the right direction. Finally, another way to support the HPO podcast is if you find one of the show sponsors has a product you would like to check out, letting them know that you came to them or heard of them from the HPO podcast is another way to support the show. This episode's sponsors include Bioptimizers Magnesium Breakthrough and Inside Tracker's Blood Panel Testing. Inside Tracker offers a wide range of blood tests. You can go into a lab or check out one of their home kits. Either way, you can take a look inside and see the areas you are thriving and spots to work on. The biggest question with this type of info is often, well, what do I do next with this information? You have the data, but what's the plan? Inside Tracker will give you suggestions and help you personalize their nutrition and lifestyle to optimize. Since people age at different speeds, some faster, some slower, this means the date that marks your birthday may not represent your body's actual biological age. That's why Inside Tracker developed Inner Age 2.0. This is a proprietary AI-driven platform that reveals how your body is aging and provides a personalized science-backed action plan to help you get younger from the inside out. At Inside Tracker, they believe that your best self isn't behind you, it's within you. By looking at the science of your health and longevity, you can discover the personalized path to living healthier and longer. So if you want to continue doing the activities you love with the people you love for the rest of your life, Checking inside with Inside Tracker is an option for you. For a limited time, Human Performance Outliers listeners can get 20% off your entire Inside Tracker order, including InnerAge 2.0. Just visit insidetracker.com forward slash HPO podcast. That's insidetracker.com forward slash HPO podcast. That link is in the show notes as well as the show sponsor page at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. So let's talk a bit about magnesium. Magnesium is abundant in things like green leafy vegetables, nuts, seeds, legumes, and whole grains. Magnesium is also an antagonist of calcium in the body and is required for vitamin D synthesis and activation. As such, magnesium deficiency can inhibit the potential benefits of vitamin D supplementation. If your way of eating does not include many magnesium-rich foods, or you have these but still experience low levels of magnesium, you might want to consider Bioptimizer's Magnesium Breakthrough. Magnesium Breakthrough has updated their magnesium supplement to include cofactors like B6 and manganese to help with absorption of magnesium. This now comes with their seven unique forms of organic full-spectrum magnesium, which can help with things like sleep improvement, stress reduction, and a sense of calm. If you need to add some extra magnesium into your diet, simply take two capsules before you go to bed and see what happens. Bioptimizers continues to offer its impressive 365-day money-back guarantee, so you can test it 
out risk-free. If interested, let them know that HPO sent you by going to magbreakthrough.com forward slash human. And don't forget to use promo code human for 10% off your order. You can find those links in the show notes and at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Matt, thanks for joining the show. Hey, how are you? Good, good. And you are, you're coming in from, is it, are you in Australia right now or New Zealand? Um, I remember. Yeah, no, I'm currently based in Australia uh, and Queensland at the moment. So um, yeah, I've got about another week here and then um, sort of away for a couple of months uh, at various races um, in, in, in finishing in Kona there for the big one in October. So yeah. Yeah, what does your race schedule look like typically coming out of Australia? Are you you're probably bouncing around all over the place between Europe and the United States, I'm guessing, to to get to the events that are kind of high on your priority list. Got it. Yeah. I mean, uh earlier this year was in the States for um, I guess what was the 2021, uh, but obviously held in 2022 given COVID. Um Ironman World Champs in Utah. So went into that. Uh, in May and then sort of came into Australia for a bit of an off-season period um, and, and just knuckled down in, into some different training blocks and and now um, off to Europe for some long course world champs and then uh, yeah into Maui for a, a month's worth of prep for, for Kona, ahead of Kona in October. Mm-hmm. Do you know is uh, the world championships, is that moving to Utah permanently now or is that just a one-year thing? I mean, there's been talk of it. I'm not quite sure. It'd be interesting to see what happens after this year's Kona in October as to what they do. Um, it was definitely a successful event, different event. Um, so, yeah, I guess we'll wait and see. But it was, um, yeah, it was a course like no other, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny because I, you know, I follow triathlon very loosely, like just enough probably to be dangerous. But like getting into the weeds with like the training methodology and stuff is usually the point that I dive in the most with that. And then some of the nutrition stuff too, because like duration out on, especially Ironman tends to cross over like fairly well with some ultra marathon stuff. But when, when I heard about uh, the world championships being in Utah, I just think, wow, I can't even imagine like Kona not being the spot for that. So it just seems like that's always been kind of the, the crown of them all from, from as long as I can remember. Yeah, I completely agree. And that's sort of, you know, that's the big talking focus point for a lot of people is Kona, Kona, Kona. You know, that, that's the key word that goes with attending the world champs is, is that. So it'd be very interesting to see what happens as to if they do move that, uh, what the perspective will be for for the uh, mainly that age group field that do typically like the, the show of Kona and what that puts on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I'd be also curious about how that just impacts people's, like, or just the trajectory of the sport almost to some degree, because you have this scenario where when the big event is in a very specific location and the Ironman, I'm guessing is similar to ultra marathon where like you can have like fast courses and you can probably have like slower courses where there's a lot more rolling Hills or, or like in the case of Kona, you have some really hot weather type spots during that where some of these variables are going to impact the way people prepare for the race, specifically how they organize their calendar year and how they generally prep and I wonder, like you switching out the world championships like that, if that would uh, really kind of put a put a, a little bit of a shift on the way people even prepare for these races. I think so. Like, I mean, Utah was a, a pretty brutal course, to be honest, and it might not have had necessarily the what we get in uh, Kona with the heat, etc. But um, it was certainly a 
a tough course in terms of elevation, both running and on the bike. So, um, yeah, like you say, it adds another variable in there um, that people have to consider when, when training. So um, it'll be super interesting to see what happens with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting. I think I've got a few topics I want to talk to you about just your trajectory into triathlon and everything like that. But before we kind of get into those, do you want to just give us a little bit of a background into like what got you into triathlon and then kind of was there a point when you got serious about it and were like, okay, this is something that I think I want to like invest in my time a little more than just uh, just a hobby or just something to do for fun? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, and it starts to become that when you look at how much time you put into something. Yeah. Uh, it, when did that crossover actually happen? And I start investing so much time in it. But um, yeah, and it's like, it's rewinding back. Um, I've sort of, you know, I, I, I look back and I've, I've been involved in triathlon. And I say seriously, but like, you know, I've been racing for three and a half, coming up four years. Um, and that is an inclusion of, I guess, my very first triathlon and, and what that looked like. And that was a, a half Ironman. Um, so I hadn't ridden a bike before that. Um, so I'm still fairly new onto the sport. Uh, before that, it was, um, I was playing around a little bit with the CrossFit scene, did that for a few years. Uh, I came from a swimming background whereby I was playing water polo through high school uh, and a bit of surf life saving. So swimming was uh, definitely there, uh, which I was fortunate to have um the running yep i could run but i wasn't wasn't amazing at it um and it was definitely still is a work on progress um and as i say on the bike i'd never really um well i hadn't been on a road bike before so that was all feeling new um and i guess you know after doing that first um half ironman for me it was just a matter of personal success and trying to make improvements um for my own well-being, health as well, but also um, just a bit of a challenge within myself to see where I could get. Um, and, and that sort of eventuated, and as it always does, it, it, it spirals and, and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And all of a sudden that's, um, you know, I look at myself now and um, I'm about to head off to Europe for a uh, second world champ in, in a 12 months and then off to Kona. So um, it's definitely a, a big part of where I stand at the moment and what I'm doing. And, and it revolves around quite a bit of time invested, um, which I'm very happy to be doing at the moment and I'm still enjoying it. So it's like, if you're enjoying it and you're loving it and I'm making progress and, um, you know, it's a challenge, then I'm all for it. So I guess that's where I'm sitting at the moment. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's always interesting when you have a sport like triathlon where you're, I mean, you're essentially doing three sports grouped into one. And I'm always amazed by that because like I find with just running, it, you know, there's there's enough to be done within that sport to kind of take, you know, take a huge chunk out of your day and your week or, or your training season and things like that. So when you add those other two disciplines, you're sort of in this position where you have to allocate your time appropriately. And with your background, as a swimmer, is that something you kind of lean on a bit as a crutch so you can work on improving cycling and the running aspect of triathlon? Or is it like, this is my strength. I need to really be in a position where I'm kind of first out of the pool, so to speak. Yeah, I completely agree. Balancing the three across 
uh, a training week or a training block or whatever the load might look like is definitely a challenge. Um, the swimming is, it's there, like there's, there's gains to be made and there's always going to be improvements and room to be had. Uh, for me, it's a matter of um, being able to not bury myself in the pool that, that becomes, uh, let's say, you know, it, it overtakes the, the training that should be done in other parts of, of that training block, if, if that makes makes sense, um, you know, because you can go and spend an extra four or five hours in the pool a week um, and realistically it might only put you um, a minute ahead in the swim. So it, it's really looking at all three disciplines and also the strengths and weaknesses of where the individual lies and particularly in my case, um, where can my time best be invested in what discipline? Uh, that's the first one. And how can it be as equal as possible across all three that, um, you know, you're avoiding different aspects such as, you know, injury and, and overtraining in one area, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it, it's a challenge. And I, I guess that's why, um, for me, I find it helpful to have a coach and, and be working with someone else to bounce those ideas off. Um, so it's a bit more of a collaborative um, approach and, and you get a different opinion on in that sense too. Yeah, it's interesting too. And the other thing my mind goes to, like when I'm training, the distance kind of determines like the order of operations of when I'm going to be doing like, say short intervals, long intervals or tempo runs, developing the long run as a priority, uh, in any of these different intensities, intensities at race day and stuff like that. So when you're kind of going through your training cycle and you're thinking of all three of these sports, are you doing similar intensity focuses with all three disciplines? Or does that even change where like you're going to do like a bout or a cycle of training where like you're just maybe doing like easy or base level endurance work on one or two of them and doing higher intensity stuff in the other area? Or how does that end up balancing out? Yeah, it, it, I think, um, well, in fact, you know, leading into any race, there's always a specificity becomes the priority and, and you really can't take that away from the training that you're doing if you're leading into a race and, and that becomes quite specific within those forthcoming weeks to a race. So I think, um, you know, having um, sessions in there that replicate or are close to the intensity required of that particular race um, definitely have to be in there. But then there's also a time where, um, whether you call it off season or, or out of um, a, a specific training block whereby your training might be easier. Um, it, it might just be more of that base building training um, or at the same time, it might be sort of the VO2 style trainings whereby um, actually that kind of training isn't really uh, important specific required for race day um, but you're trying to build capacity outside of that that specificity block so there's definitely an element of including it all somewhere in let's say a 12-month calendar but but where you put it in that that specific 12-month block uh, according to your races uh, can be pretty important too. Yeah, that makes sense. I think the, I mean, it seems, sounds a lot like what I'll be doing with ultra marathon stuff where, you know, like a full Ironman, we're kind of on the far end of the in intensity spectrum towards lower intensity, uh, come race day, which is a little different than what you see with a lot of like Olympic distance sports and running. 
or, or like what you would probably see in like short, short triathlon. Uh, and you know, I'm always working on like the least specific stuff, assuming there's a foundation there, like the least specific stuff mm-hmm. earlier in the plan and then working my way towards most specific stuff on race day. And then, you know, if that's like a hundred miler that gets, gets to a point where like I'm back down, like below my aerobic threshold during peaking phase, which I think is always a little bit of a weird thing in my mind after like collegiate in high school racing, where you're doing like five K's up to 10 K's. And it's like, you know, for those distances, (laughs) specificity for races, like, you know, short and long intervals, a lot of times. Yeah, completely agree. Um, and, and, you know, um, sometimes and quite often more than not that the, the earlier build and whatever that phase looks like, like can often be quite, quite hard or harder than, than the specificity build because you, you sort of tailoring your specificity towards the event that you've got coming or the race that you've got coming. Whereas that early, those early days of training, um, can be those harder sessions, um, or they can be the, the, the real easy building base sessions as well. Mm-hmm. Do, do you find that since you have like lower impact on the bike in the pool, you end up just allocating quite a bit more time towards any of those intensities, uh, towards those two disciplines, or is there, is, is there a point where you hit just like a certain amount of volume from a time standpoint where like, there's just not a whole lot more my energy systems can give much less just the whole lack of impact. Yeah. I mean, the, the swimming is fantastic for that because it really reduces, uh, the whole impact thing. And, and as does the bike, you know, um, you can go through uh, a period whereby you've actually uh, incurred a bit of damage from, from running, et cetera, and, and use the, the pool and the, the swim as a bit more of a recovery session, but still clocking some aerobic Ks and, and, and training time. So um, there's definitely value in that, as is the bike as well. Mm-hmm. When you get into kind of the thick of it, uh, what type of hours per week are you hitting in training? Yeah, I guess uh, when I'm looking at, you know, uh, before a race, it's probably between 25 to 30 hours, uh, depending on what sort of race. I mean, and that's sort of, you know, your longer course. Um, and then then in the early days, it's I'm happily sit around 20, 21, 22. Okay. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I think when, when I'm really getting crazy at like the end of a training plan for like a hundred miler, I might get up to 20 hours with everything. So, you know, that's, that's about as high as I feel I can kind of get away with before the margin of diminishing return starts kicking in just from <laughs> the level of impact with running. But I always, I'm always curious about like triathlon and swimming and cycling in general. Cause I know like, you know, like Tour de France cyclists, they're putting in those big, like 30 hour plus weeks sometimes too, because they can sort of get away with it a little bit better with that lack of impact. Um, yeah. And you know, the, the, the next kind of like phase to that question is there is the, the energy required to put in a big week, like you described. And how does that kind of play out from a day to day in terms of like what you're eating, how much of it you're eating, like what those targets are and things like that. So when you first kind of decided, I'm going to take triathlon seriously is that when you started focusing on nutrition too or did you have like an interest in that before uh yeah well yeah good question actually i mean the the coach i'm working with and the coach that i've worked with through this whole triathlon journey for myself uh is a very strong advocate of of uh low carb approach 
Um, and that was never a topic of conversation, uh, particularly in my first event, that, that half Ironman that I talk about, um, as it just, it wasn't a priority. It was more so, um, let's just see how we go, get out there, swim, bike and run. Um, and then from that point onwards, when we made a decision to go and tackle a full Ironman, full distance, um, then that's when the approach to nutrition started to come in. And, and actually that was a considerable factor to, to have a good day out there is um, we need to change a little bit of this nutrition that's going on at the moment uh, and align it to uh, the race that we've got coming up, which was deemed to be a bit of an endurance event. You know, it's, it's, I was out there for nine, nine and a half hours um, and changing nutrition within that training cycle was was only advantageous for me to have a reasonable day um, through that first one. And, and I guess that from that point onwards, um, I had success from that. Um, and that's just helped the nutrition journey through through the last few years. And, and it's something that I've taken on board um, and I'm still still applying to training and racing. Awesome. And is your coach Dan Plews? Is that who's coaching you? Uh, Grant Schofield. Oh, oh, cool. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. yeah you, you just, yeah. you, when you said low carb uh, advocate for coaching, I thought Dan just popped into my mind immediately, <laughs> but I suppose <laughs> there are some others out there, but uh, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, yeah. So one of the things that really uh, tipped me off as like, I got to get mad on the podcast was uh, I was at KetoCon a couple of weeks ago with, with S Fuels, who's both of our nutrition sponsor. And uh, we had a booth there and the, the big background to that booth was this uh, like life-size poster of you on a bike. And then behind that was this chart that had your kind of evolution of the watts you were producing and your fat oxidation rates. And it was just super fascinating to look at because I, th- I want to say it started in like 2019 and then it scaled up to like current and you, you, your, your original fat oxidation rates were kind of what I would expect from just like, like a typical endurance athlete who isn't, you know, taking any sort of like manipulation with carbohydrate and eating essentially what you would expect a lot of endurance athletes and triathletes to eat. But then as you kind of go through your, your progression, I'm sure there was some training stimulus that improved your fat oxidation rates as well as other things. But, uh, when you get to the end of that chart, you were putting up numbers close to, I think like 1.8, uh, grams per minute for, uh, uh, your fat oxidation rate and that's off the charts. So, (laughs) so what was it? Um, or did you, did you kind of ease into it or was it something where you're just like, all right, I'm going to go full scale, low carb and just see how this goes. Or how did that kind of take place in terms of like first hearing about it and then implementing it? Yeah, I, I guess the implementation and for me to be able to do that, I had to understand the why and why I was going to be making that change in the first place. Um, and, and I was, as I say, fortunate enough to work with Grant Schofield um, and, and we looked at some numbers and, and consumption rates and uh, fat oxidation, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, for me to see those numbers around um you know, the duration required, uh, or let's say the energy required to be out there for the duration of a day of a, of a typical Ironman. And I guess that the time that we we're looking at, um, that would need to happen. So it was a pretty, when, when I made the decision to, I guess we talk about keto 
in defining what keto looks like and versus low carb. Uh, for me, the initial change period was, I guess, quite was was a keto approach. You know, mm-hmm. I took a keto approach for about three or four weeks um, initially. And then from that point on, it was we eased up on that word keto and it became a bit more of a low carb approach whereby, um, you know, I, I did have different training sessions that I needed to put in there and the whole keto approach just didn't, um, that didn't fit with all of the training sessions. Um, it might fit with some of it throughout the week, um, but there's a time and place where I needed to top that energy source up um so yeah it was a pretty drastic approach when we first first changed over um and then from that point onwards throughout i guess the course if i look back um two and a half three years um it's been something that i've maintained um but it's also a nutritional approach that is aligned very specifically with the training that i'm doing and i think that that's the key was was aligning the two nutrition and training together uh so that they essentially um you know they, they talk to each other and, and that they're, they're made for each other so um if i was going out for a faster run or a faster ride or or, or a lower carb um run or ride then that had to be at somewhat of a low intensity requiring less um muscle glycogen so yeah yeah no i've got a few questions uh that popped into my head when you were kind of explaining that that i'm really interested in here i think um uh the first one i want to ask is like when you were kind of describing the like like fuel to your work your work uh workload or i guess your intensity load is maybe the better way to look at it does Mm -hmm. that mean you're kind of doing a little more carbohydrate when uh you're kind of in those earlier phases of the training season and you're hitting some of those least specific intensities to race day and then as you kind of push through your training plan you're reducing your carbohydrate a bit in terms of percentages as you get more into like what you'll actually be doing on race day gotcha yeah uh good question i mean it completely depends on the training session that I've got lined up. Um, if it is a higher intensity session and it aligns pretty closely with, uh, you know, a race day simulation, then it's advantageous for me to simulate what I would on race day in terms of uh, fueling before that session and fueling during that session. Um, doesn't mean I'm shoveling down the carbohydrates, but it might just mean that I'm topping up that session with uh, some calories and, and maybe a little bit of carbs here and there to um to help the body help the digestive system actually understand that that or or for me to know that i can digest that kind of uh energy to get through that session um and then on the flip side of that there's also um you know other sessions that i might have in a week that completely uh intentionally fasted or intentionally um at a lower intensity that I don't feel or intentionally don't feel for, for that, that specific session. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It makes sense. And I think like when, when, when you're putting out fat oxidation rates, the level that you have, it seems like you're probably pulling a couple levers to get them up that high. And uh, one thing I'm always talking with my coaching clients about and practicing myself is like, don't get too hung up on any one of them and realize it's kind of a, it's a bit of a relationship amongst them all. So you have like the training stimulus that all endurance athletes are going to get some of if they're just training at low intensities, doing longer runs. Then there's like another step to that where like we can manipulate where we're placing the fuel relative to the workout session. I remember I had uh, um, uh, Alan Cousins on 
And he was talking mm-hmm. about that where he'd have some athletes come in who were following more or less a moderate carbohydrate diet and their fat oxidation rates weren't quite where they wanted them to be in order to, to be able to fuel appropriately during the event they were preparing for. And he had some where they just shifted the carbohydrates they had to a different part of the day. So it was away from the training session. And, and he said that was enough to improve their fat oxidation rates to get them into the range that they needed to be able to sustain the fueling they needed to defend muscle glycogen on race day. And I thought that was a really interesting lever to consider mm. um, a very small one, I suspect, but uh, one that was is probably worth considering was uh, another previous podcast guest that you'd probably be interested in was uh, is Dr. Mike Nelson. And he does a lot of like metabolic flexibility type stuff. And mm-hmm. he had sent me an article not too long ago where he was where it was looking at just different sources of carbohydrate and how that impacts uh, fat oxidation rates. And mm-hmm. this particular study seemed to suggest that you, there is a small difference. So like if you did like straight table sugar versus something like maybe like a sweet potato or some, some carbohydrate source that had a lot of fiber with it, it's like, mm-hmm. there was a difference in the fat oxidation rates when someone was prioritizing one or the other. So I always see those as kind of mm-hmm. like, like maybe smaller levers to pull. And then the, the big one is obviously going to be like the reduction of carbohydrate in general. And that's the one that, I think you, you still have to be a little careful with, cause like you said, there are sessions that are going to be quite glycolytic. And if you find yourself in a situation where the session is glycolytic enough, but also slow enough that you can do quite a bit of it. That's where I find people get into a hard spot because you can deplete your muscle glycogen in that session, well, not completely depleted, but depleted enough where you suffer your performance. Um, but, uh, yeah, so there's like a lot to consider there. Uh, are you, um, are you testing frequently to see where those numbers are at? Or are you, th- are you kind of have an idea just based on precedence and then maybe do a, a test close to your race. So you know exactly what your numbers are at, or am I thinking too much into it? Yeah, to be honest, um, I think I've tested in the lab four times. Um, and I haven't been in there for yeah, a little while. So I'm not testing constantly. Um, but I guess back to that whole consumption of, of carbohydrates and, and to balance that, I think also the reassurance as an athlete to be able to know that you can, you know, if you've been on a lower carb approach and, and you've been restricting the carbohydrates, um, there's a point in time where you do need to consume those for particular sessions, whether that's race day or whether that's a, within your training cycle, I think that there's a huge amount to be taken from the fact that you know you can consume uh, an element, whatever that level is, of carbohydrates, and you can actually process it, and, and your stomach can manage it and digest it uh, without having issues, um, because that's the last thing you really want on race day is to be putting something in that you don't know mm-hmm. um, and, and end up with complications. Yeah, no, that's a great point too, because I think you don't want to create a worse problem from the one you were trying to avoid in the first place. And I think like one of the biggest draws towards kind of a lower carbohydrate approach when you get into these longer events is the ability to consume less and therefore bypass the digestive issues that plague so many endurance athletes. And if you get yourself to a point where you're so dependent uh, on, I guess, fat as your fuel versus any carbohydrate, there is that trade-off where now your body's not necessarily prepared to process and digest, uh, a meaningful amount of exogenous carbohydrate. And then you might get that same digestive issue that had plagued you previously at a much lower 
uh, amount of carbohydrate per hour and then find yourself kind of in a sticky situation, I would imagine. I completely agree. And, um, you know, there's no better place to, to test that, to train that in your training specifically. And, um, you know, when we have, we talk about specificity, going back to that within your training cycle, uh, pre-race, um, to me, that seems like the perfect time to be able to, to trial that and test it, um, you know, in moderation and, and um, conservatively. Um, I think that's, that's the perfect place to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Are you, so I got kind of two questions. I'll start with one, just so we don't get, I don't get too far in, but are you tracking grams of carbohydrates per day and having like specific targets you're typically aiming for dependent on the session? Or are you going more off of like, I want a percentage of my intake to come from carbohydrates, fats, and proteins? Yeah, I'm not tracking uh, specific grams. So I'm not, not that um that well into it but I, I i i've got a fair idea as to what i'm consuming and what i need pre-session you know um and, and i've just gone through um eight weeks here in in australia whereby it's been a bit of a four weeks of that was was an early building stage whereby i had some higher end uh, sessions on the bike and I, and I know that for me to successfully complete those sessions um i did need to top up those those fuel sources with with carbohydrates um and when that would be done that would be done prior to that session um and a little bit before uh the evening before so um although i'm not specifically tracking the the amount of carbohydrates consumed for a particular session or or race day as such um i think in my head i know that what i need to consume uh based on session is 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 pretty accurate yeah, you get enough confirmation from repetition, trying that stuff, I think. And I, I know for me, what I'll usually do is uh, I'll, I'll spend like a week or maybe two weeks at the most during certain phases of training where I will track things real closely. And usually it's more just to kind of confirm what I think I know. So I remind myself mm-hmm. that I'm actually like doing what I think I'm doing. But after that, it's like, it does get kind of nauseating on top of like, you know, everything else that goes into preparing to be like listing and documenting every little thing you eat and weighing it all out and stuff like that. So I think there's like, there's good reason, I think to you, you, and endurance athletes in general, I think they kind of get into a bit of a routine with what they're eating. So once you kind of have an idea of like, this is like, these are kind of the foods, the staples that I'm going to be leaning into heavily. You kind of know, like on this day, I might need a little more of that. Or on this day, I might need a little less of that. And, and you can be a little more intuitive about it versus being so specific as to documenting every little thing. Don't get me wrong. There's, there, there has been a point in time where I have done that. And and I've done that on, on both spectrums as to what I need for, for a session and, and, um, specifically, you know, um, how many, you know, carbohydrate content am I consuming in a day when I'm, when I'm on that lower carb approach and, and what that is for me. So there's a time and a place where you've done that. But like you say, um, things start to become natural and it becomes after repetition, there's a bit of habit there and, and knowledge that you learn. So, um, there's value taken from that as well. And as I say, this has been a process. It's, it's not something that I've done for, three or four months it's, it's been years now that we, we talk about this um so there's some content and and uh, context around that mm-hmm. yeah yeah and, and the second second part of that question i want to ask about was kind of more specific to race day itself because 
I always find this really interesting with longer events like triathlon, ultra marathon is you have this situation where your energy output is going to almost certainly exceed input for that day. Now, granted the day after an Ironman triathlon or a ultra marathon, you're likely doing very little so you can catch up on that quite quickly. But, uh, the, the kind of atmosphere you have on race day, if you just look at what you're eating tends to be carb heavy, I'm guessing, but carb heavy relative to what you're actually exogenously ingesting. And it doesn't necessarily, or it doesn't account for the amount of calories burnt that is just simply coming off your body, whether it be body mm -hmm. fat or muscle glycogen. So there's this other kind of piece to that equation that I think is worth mentioning before you get into the details of your fueling strategy. Um, because if you think about it, like if you're out there on the, you swimming, uh, bike and then running, there's a ton of energy that you're pulling right out of your body fat stores that are going to get you that finish line on top of what you're ingesting to kind of go with it. So when I think of it that way, I think like there's a, there's almost a percentage of carbohydrate and glycogen versus fat metabolism on race day that is for someone like you is going to be skewed pretty heavy towards fat metabolism, but mm -hmm. it's still very important to defend that small fuel tank, the muscle glycogen side of it. So is there like a specific number of grams you're trying to target per hour when you're out there for an event that's as long as nine hours? Right. Um, yes, yeah, it's a fantastic question. It's, it's one that pops up quite, you know, quite often. Um, and I think it's not that, uh, when we talk about low carb approach, it's not that we're on race day, um, completely eliminating the intake of carbohydrates because that, um, that is needed, but it's a matter of how long are they going to last? Um, and then once they're depleted, the ability to be able to uh, digest them and turn that into usable fuel starts to become limited the longer we're out there for. So having the ability to be able to um, have metabolic flexibility in the way we can oxidize our fat and have that as a fuel source is only advantageous to try and bring that up if that makes sense. Um, because there's a point in time when we will run out of um, muscle glycogen and being able to call on another fuel source and in our case it's going to be um, our fat source um, as fuel to get us through uh, to that that nine hour block is pretty important so um, I guess a lot of the fueling in terms of um, taking on carbohydrates does come in on the bike um, and, and setting yourself up to be able to get through the run without uh, too much of a decline or, or um, you know, losing that ability of intensity through throughout the run. So a lot of the consumption of carbohydrates comes through um, through on the bike um, to be able to, yeah, as I say, um, get to that that finish line without too much fade. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I think, uh, yeah, I was thinking that through because like one, you're not going to do a lot of fueling in the water, obviously. I'm sure some people are popping gels if, if they can get away with it, but uh that seems like a spot where you kind of just have to get through uh without mm -hmm. a lot of exogenous feeling the bike makes a ton of sense for stuff we were talking about before you it's a little easier to digest on a bike than it's going to be on a running you just don't have that that jostling up and down that you're going to get with a with a running mechanic so mm -hmm. if you can kind of 
replenish and load up on the bike, then you can probably get away with a little less in the pool in and in the run, if I'm understanding right. Correct. Yeah. Sorry. And I go back to your original question. It's like, what is that number? Um, and, and that's, um, you know, we talked about these fields before and I use that product there. Um, and, and I'm trying to consume every 30 minutes um, around that 20, 25 grams of carbohydrates on, on the bike. Okay. So every 30 minutes you're going to 20, 25. Yeah, that makes sense. I think uh, I had uh, Matt Carpenter on the show a while back and he's, he's a research scientist out of the UK who's gotten interested in just like, you know, what should these low carb athletes be doing or what are they doing and what should they be doing, I guess. Um, which I thought was really interesting because he's kind of a level, he's, he's a level handed guy in the sense that he's not like looking to try to like sell the low carb approach, but he's also very aware that there's more and more athletes, uh, just trying this out and experimenting with it. And some are sticking with it. And with that growth, you need some ideas and recommendations or some positions that you can give advice to people for. Cause unlike you or me, not all, not all people are going to be in a lab getting their fat oxidations tests and fin figuring out exactly how many grams of carbohydrate they're going to need for an hour for a given intensity. And they sort of need some ballpark figures, I guess, to maybe start the planning process and play around with it in their race specific training cycles. And he was saying that with the folks that have come through his lab, they were typically around like say 30 to 45 grams per hour, uh, mm -hmm. carbohydrate. And that made sense to me because the position paper for ultra marathon single day events suggests a moderate carbohydrate diet would demand somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to 70 grams. So I was thinking like, yeah, that's, that's kind of like a step lower at least. And then you're probably gonna have the individual variability as well as, uh, just how strict mm -hmm. someone is with carbohydrate in terms of where they maybe fall within that range. But, um, it sounds like with the bike being the heaviest fueling session for you, uh, you're probably right in that ballpark figure somewhere, I would imagine. I think so. And, um, you know, as I say, that, that is the time. Um, and it's not about, we talk about low-carb approach, it's not about not having any carbohydrates at all. It's about, um, yeah, like you say, limiting limiting that factor of uh, less variability. And it's like, if we can stretch that out to be shared across two fuel sources and, and the, those fuel sources, we know the fat burning is, is hard, a harder one to access and a harder one to get the intensity level the same as, as uh, being fueled by uh, like the glycolytic system, then um, it's advantageous for us to pull that, try and pull that fat, fat um, system up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So on, on race day specifically, are you doing mostly race plus and race plus gel then, or are you mixing in any solid food stuff with that? Uh, race plus gel. Yeah. Okay. So you're just doing uh, straight, straight gel or. Yeah. Race plus gel. Um, I actually, and I experimented with it and it's quite a new product as such, but, um, played around with it in, in Utah and actually, um, not quite as strong, but I had it in bottle in a bottle form as well um and it was still thicker than just say fluid but it wasn't quite um it wasn't quite as thick as what i had um like a full concentrate bottle so I, so the bottles that i had loaded preloaded on my bike the full drink bottles were still enough that i could get through the, the actual drink bottle and drink them um but they were concentrated with race plus gel um so yeah not actually any race plus product just the race plus gel 
Yeah. The nice thing about the bike is you can just stick probably like a 16 ounce bottle with that concentrate in there. And that's just going to be a ton of, ton of calories that you can just kind of, uh, chip away at more or less. And then I'm guessing you probably have another bottle or two on there. That's got like either plain water or water and electrolytes or something that you're rinsing that down with. Exactly. Well, in fact, the, all of the bottles that were on, on my bike in Utah, uh, contained, uh, an amount of race plus gel, whether it was high concentrate or low concentrate, oh, okay. uh, they, they all had that on there, if you know what I mean. So, um, yeah. And then any sort of point where I felt like I needed to, uh, help wash that down with, with water or, or whatever, uh, I just use an aid station as I went through to, to wash that down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the thing I like the most, I think about, I'll do a combination of race plus and race plus gel just really depends on the logistics of the race itself. If it's like a really short loop course, and I've got a person out there handing me whatever I want, then I don't need as much of the gel. Cause I just don't have to carry anything. But yeah. what I really like about those two products is they do a really good job of balancing in the electrolytes too. So you're not necessarily trying to, trying to game that system with two two tasks you can get most of that uh from just that product so you're kind of killing two birds with one stone which for someone like yourself who's doing all gels and liquids essentially it's just you kind of you're kind of focused on two things and i have my bottle with the substance in it and then maybe like you said an aid station of plain water if you're feeling like you're getting a little too much uh or if you just don't need any more product or you need to dilute it down a little bit with some plain water yeah i, com- I completely agree um the only additive that I add to those bottles um, is a sodium tab, okay, uh, or a couple, a couple, and, and that's that's simply just to more so if it's a, a hot race and and it, particularly in the heat, because um, I know that I have and I have in the past had issues with um, you know not specific to muscle groups but but overall global cramping. Mm, yeah uh and 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 i think for me that that's just one additive that i can pop one of those oral tabs or two of those oral tabs in the bottles and and just let it um dilute but as you say those products have got the the additive benefit of having the electrolytes and 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 a huge range of that in there so um it's not like you're trying to add extra formula into to those products as well to to mix them all up yeah. And that makes sense too. Cause I think like the other thing that's always worth considering for a low carb endurance athlete is the sodium equation, because for one, you tend to excrete a little more of it, uh, when you're on a low carb approach. And then on top of that, you also have this, like you have this compete or you have this situation where someone's on a moderate high carb diet they're going to improve their hydration status to some degree from just the ingestion of carbohydrate. So Mm. for someone like you or me, who's eating, you know, likely somewhere in the neighborhood of half of what the average moderate high carb athletes going to be on, on race day, we still have to stay hydrated. Like we can't afford to lose that battle. So when you have the reduction of food coming or the reduction of products coming in from carbohydrate, you're still going to need to take in the water and the, the, the fluids on those, especially on those hot days. And those you're going to need to be, you're going to need to consider the electrolyte side of it. And, you know, you'd have to have quite a bit of race plus or race plus gel in order to match your electrolyte needs on a hot weather race. I would imagine if you were to try to lean on that exclusively. Mm, yeah. I, I mean, and I mean, you know, you look at the content of um, your, what carbohydrate 
brings to someone on, like you say, a moderate to higher carb diet. And, and there's a, there's a lot of, you know, hydrate, hydrate uh, in that, in that. So for, for them, so, so for us, sorry, we, we've got to look at other ways to be able to do that and be able to hold on to that, that fluid content as such. Um, and as I say, for me, it's, it's like those, those tabs are just dissolvable. They sit in there and um, that sort of takes care of that, that equation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know, is there a certain amount of grams of, of uh, electrolytes you're trying to hit for like, say a liter of water, or is it, is it just kind of, do, are you going a little bit by feel on that? Uh, it's a little bit by feel. I know that, um, I know that I'm losing about a gram of sodium per hour. Um, and I've got literally got gram tabs that I pop in. Um, so if anything, I'm probably over or not over if, if you look proportionally on the bike, how long I'm on the bike for and the consumption of salt tabs that I have on the bike, I'm, I'm probably on the higher end of consumption versus loss. Um, and, and the fact of that's going to catch up with me in the run as, as well. Um, and, and not so that I don't take them in the run, but, um, I'm very aware of, of not, um, let's say taking too much of them. Um, but at the same time, I, I know I'm probably taking on the high side of, of the sodium content. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I think, uh, you know, especially on a warmer, on a warmer day, I would mm-hmm. think you're probably going through a couple liters of water or fluids per hour, maybe more. And then I know the, the recommendations that they have for single day ultras, which would probably match fairly decently with uh, a nine hour event, although the, the water section might change that atmosphere a little bit, but uh, <laughs> you have, uh, I think they're saying like five to 700 milligrams per liter is kind of a good target. So you're probably somewhere in there, I would imagine. Uh, right. remo- and, and given that you're probably, like we said earlier, doing a little bit more on the bike than you are on the swim and then the run side of things. Mm. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Uh, no, it's all good. I think like the other fueling question I'm always really interested in with folks like yourself is like, what are you doing for breakfast before the race? Because, you know, most people are thinking like, you know, if you're a marathon runner or any runner, you you wake up, you have a bagel, maybe like, you know, bowl of cereal or something like that, oatmeal, whatever Mm -hmm. happens to be. And, uh, and then you're off to the races and the, the low carb athletes that i've spoken to and myself when the race is as long as what we're doing tend to focus more on fats and proteins for breakfast is that the same for you or are you doing like a last minute glycogen top off situation before you start um you know like uh let's say two or three days before a bigger race so we're talking ironman here um i'll start to introduce i wouldn't say heavy carb approach but i'll definitely have carbohydrates in the diet and that, that's predominantly probably in my evening meal um and and breakfast is is breakfast and then let's say the night before again we're going through that same process the morning of um it's what i've done in training and and um for me personally i, I know what works and I, I i know what i've done in the past and that's what i stick to it's it's eggs bacon uh, coffee and two pieces of, of grain toast. Nice. Um, so we're, we're not talking about, uh, overloading specifically with, with a whole bunch of sourdough bread and, 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 and that sort of stuff. I mean, there, there's definitely an element of carbohydrates there in, in the morning. 
Um, but I wouldn't say substantially it's greater than what I've consumed in the last two days. So I'm not sitting there thinking in the morning that I'm shoveling all these carbs and it, it's, it's probably more so on the spectrum of a couple of days before um, in moderation, obviously, and, and sensibly around the right carbohydrates those couple of days out. Um, but race morning is, is uh, yeah, pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And then the, the other thing I'm always curious about is kind of that first hour or so of the race itself. So for you, this might take care of itself just due to the nature of the first hour of your race. You're, you're likely in the water uh, where when I'm starting like a longer race, I usually avoid fueling in any meaningful way during that start of the race through the first 45 to 60 minutes, um, as an effort to sort of like kind of churn up, you churn up the fat metabolism a little bit once you get moving. And since the intensity is low, I'm not, you know, going super glycolytic or anything like that right out the gate. And then once I kind of get that going, that's when I start kind of like trickling in the carbohydrates throughout the course of the day. Are you doing anything like that? Or is there a, uh, a fueling strategy that gets you kind of, are you, are you like taking something in right before you start or how does the, the water maybe impact that? Yeah, I think what you've just talked about of the non-consumption within the first hour naturally takes care of itself out of, out of what we're doing. Trifling, it's like, you know, you can't really consume anything in the swim. Um, so that's just a natural thing that's beyond our control, which, which we don't do. Um, and particularly right before a race, um, a lot of athletes will line up and they'll be sucking on caffeine gels and, and you definitely see that there. Um, I can't say I've ever done that before. Um, and it's not something that I feel I need to do. Um, I might be looking at like an electrolyte drink, um, within the hour of getting on the start line just to, just to top up. Um, but I, I certainly don't uh, fall under the bracket of having to have a coffee, you know, 15 minutes before lining up or, or a gel or on the start line. So it's not something I've done. It's not something I, I feel I need to do. And again, um, I replicate race day. Uh, sorry, I replicate my trainings from race day, if that makes sense. So um, mm-hmm. what I do in those training sessions, and I've, I've always got a particular training session that, that simulates a race simulation, and I try and line that up exactly what I would do on race day in terms of everything. Uh, so that's before getting on the bike, um, all the way back to back to eating as well, um, prior to fueling that session. So um, yeah, that's what that looks like. Awesome. Um, I want to transition a little bit into just uh, the, I think it was your most recent event was in Utah. You haven't done one since then, have you? Uh, no, no, that okay. was the last one. Oh, sorry, sorry, no, I did. I came back uh, came back into Australia and did uh, Ironman Cairns. And uh, that was about four weeks after Utah. Oh, okay. How, what, what's your race? Sorry, I'm, I'm pivoting again. But uh, <laughs> what's your race frequency in a calendar year? Are you like doing tune-up races and then picking a couple goal races or how does like the calendar play uh, in terms of the race frequency thing yeah i mean the the, the kens thing after the world champs was was pretty uh it was conservative uh, um but on the on the left side of conservative if you know what i mean uh yeah. backing up two ironmans within sort of four weeks was, was definitely a hard task to be to be done and i probably out of natural circumstances wouldn't always do that in a, in a calendar year um there's certainly big target races and and i think the more i'm involved in the sport and as i say i've only been in the sport for three and a half coming up four years um 
you start to be able to withstand load and and train you know everything training volume race volume um so it, it, it's transitioned from the point of doing one ironman a year um you know because that, that's all i could handle at that point in time because i i didn't know any better that's what my body could take and that's all i'd i'd hadn't have enough training for um to to this point whereby you know, I just put two Ironmans together and and sort of that within that four week space. Um, and, and particularly coming up, we've got Kona, so that's been a big focus uh, for this year. So I guess uh, rounding out this year, we'll look at uh, yeah, what do we got? Three Ironmans um, and and a couple of little tune up races, half Ironman races, and and uh, Olympic distance in there. So it kind of depends what's on the calendar um and, and obviously with COVID that's been a massive barrier to being able to even get anywhere so it's, it's kind of within the past 18 months it's, it's it's a matter of actually what's locally around you without being able to travel um just getting to if that makes sense mm-hmm. yeah yeah and I guess like coming off of uh 2020 and 2021 race opportunities were just few and far between so you might be feeling like a little bit of a, a caged animal at the moment, wanting to jump into everything that shows up uh, to kind of make up for some lost time and get those energies out, I would imagine. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, Ken's, to be honest, worked out pretty well. I was coming into Australia anyway. I was going to be going to do that race, uh, but just a half Ironman distance. Uh, but in fact, you know, um, we look what happened at Utah and I actually came up pretty well and not too beaten up. So um, it was a really good opportunity to be able to put my body through uh, another Ironman and, and again, progress that volume, that race volume and, and be able to withstand that because um, it's I wouldn't have been able to do that, you know, two years ago or, or even 12 months ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you just, you went to work during the pandemic and then came out uh, a better athlete, I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do want to, I do want to talk a little bit about Utah specifically, because I think it's, uh, I mean, obviously you had a great day there and became a world champion. So, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot to be said there was, what was the expectation going into that event, given kind of your relative youth in the sports, uh, the pandemic in general and the lack of races Mm -hmm. during that, was there a, a real firm target going into that race? Um, to be completely honest with you, it was never a race that was on the calendar. Um, I was in New Zealand at the time and COVID was still floating around at the start of this year. And as a result, they had actually cancelled Ironman New Zealand, which I had uh, planned to, to do. So um, as a result of that, um, yeah, Utah became a thing. Um, so the window to build for that was pretty short. Um, not to say that there was no expectations in doing so um and getting there and what the results look like but it was definitely a a shorter runway if we look at it from that perspective um given it was a world champ world championship that i was i was traveling to um but there was definitely an expectation going into it that um i was going to go and give it my best and and do as well as i could um and where i'd finish on the day would be relevant to how others raced as well um so it was i guess looking back i took as many steps as i possibly could in the right direction to eliminate the variables that could potentially inhibit a good performance um and and for me that meant getting to the race location early um and and spending a bit of time there um we actually went to cedar city for a couple of weeks which is slightly above st george um at a little bit of altitude uh so spent some time there 
um, and actually got on the course, raced the course or, or trained on the course and, and got some slight um, altitude uh, adaptations, which all helped. So, um, yeah, we took as many uh, of those variables out as possible uh, that would eliminate uh, making it a harder race day for myself. Mm-hmm. Did you get over early enough to uh, feel like you weren't racing in the middle of the night? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And that was another thing. Like, it's a big trip for, for us from mm-hmm. New Zealand to get over there. Um, so, and, you know, a lot of athletes do it is they, they'll turn out race week. And and for me to turn out race week, racing a world championships uh, in hot, dry conditions at somewhat of an altitude uh, on a very extreme course just highlighted not recipe for disaster but things could have been done better and I had the ability and flexibility to be able to eliminate some of those things and and one of those was travel so getting over there nice and early eliminating the travel uh settling into the altitude and then actually getting some quality training in those couple of couple of weeks prior to um the race was was the best situation that I could hope for. And, uh, and we went ahead and executed that. So, um, and not to mention that that training was done on the, on the actual course as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Did so once things, once things got rolling, were you, I'm, I'm guessing anyway, based on what you described to me so far was like, you were like, okay, I know what I need to do to execute my race plan. And you just kind of go about doing it and as best you can ignore what everyone else is doing. Was there a point during the race where you're like, I'm in this thing. And then did you take the lead at some point and think like, here it goes. I'm in the lead. (laughs) Yeah. And I think you would probably, um, you know, you'd feel the same around the, it's a long day out, you know, and it's not over until it's over until you Mm -hmm. cross the finish line. And and, and I'm sure you've been in, in situations whereby, um, you know, things dramatically change right at the very end or closer to the end of the race than they do at the start of the race. So I think having composure throughout certainly the swim, uh, all of the bike and definitely the first half of the run um, around your own race and what I needed to execute was, was key. And and that's uh, kind of what I did. I knew what I needed to ride in terms of numbers because it was a, uh, it was a, it was a hilly course with lots of elevation. Um, and, and I knew that that was going to put um, a large percentage of the course off or that, that they would pay for it later on in the run. Um, and then certainly running the first half of that marathon um, under control of what I know that I can uh, execute well enough to be in control and actually come home in the last 21 still with um, an element of yeah, consistency and limiting that variability was key. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, was there a spot when you kind of had a chance to kind of sit down and reflect where you were just like, I really exceeded my expectations in terms of what my fitness indicated uh, going into it? Or was it just basically like you just executed the plan so well that you ended up uh, where you ended up? Yeah, probably the, yeah, probably the first to be, to be honest, uh, everything, fell into place exactly as I thought it was as, as, as we thought it was going to in terms of what I put out on the bike actually that was slightly under what I ran uh, but I guess the the major highlight around that fitness was probably the last let's say you know 30 minutes of the run 40 minutes of the run whereby there was a requirement to actually 
uh, be running the same pace, if not faster, uh, than than I was for at least the first ten k of that marathon. So um, that was it was needed that that had to happen in order for me to to win that age group race. Um, so if I look back and reflect that that was probably the pivot point where there was some um, expectation that was was above than what I thought, but actually, um, all things given, it was uh, it was it was reality. Yeah, it's interesting. I always think when I'm talking to people about like race execution and tactics and strategy and stuff. I had Dave Scott on the podcast a long time ago, and he was telling me about an, mm-hmm. at Kona one year he was in one of his epic duels. And if I'm remembering the story properly, he was coming up on the run in second place, looking to overtake first and didn't want to kind of scare, uh, scare the, scare the, on the pass and like fire out, fire up the the competitor. So he like, there had been like, there was like a, I think there was like a, like a service vehicle for the race that was kind of like nearby. And he sort of like slid to one side of that. <laughs> if I'm remembering it right. It was something where he like kind of tried to disguise the past. He's like, I'm hoping, hoping to be past it, past with authority enough where it just like instead of getting fired up, it's just like kind of like, oh, I can't do it. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, awesome, awesome. I guess the hard thing for that run was that we they had a uh, wave start, so the gentleman that was in front of me, I, I oh. and I, I didn't actually even see him on the uh, on the course at all so it was all done off splits and timing splits um of which aaron um did a fantastic job and and had some other people out there providing data um given where i was placed on the on the day in the field so mm-hmm. um yeah i can relate yeah so you're literally getting feedback from someone else like you're you know like four minutes up or four minutes behind or something like that exactly yep exactly uh that gap had I guess within the first half of the marathon, um, I pushed up into the third place or second place, I think it was, and then um, and then I let that gap slip from about four minutes to to eight or six minutes, I think it was, um, and then you know I just really had to bury my bury myself in the end to to pull that margin back, and uh, it, it did it come down to uh, ninety second windows, uh, thirty second windows. You got 20 seconds, so I was slowly taking that time back. But it was, um, it wasn't like it was a head to head on the on the uh, on the course. Yeah, and I'm sure once you saw that that finishing shoot, you were ecstatic to get to that point. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, it was a uh, long day. It's you've been there before. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I I've been on both sides of that. I've been passed in the last mile a couple times in ultras. So it's like, you, I know what it feels like to be the person kind of like letting it slip away. But I've also had somewhere it's like, you know, you execute really well, and you're, you're catching people up to the end. So um, it's exciting stuff. Uh, final question, kind of a, a light one. Did you get to Zion National Park? at all or i guess maybe did the did the bike go through there at all is it did it get that wild i didn't even look at the it course. Did, it, yeah it didn't um it didn't go through that essentially but uh we definitely we rode part of it um and as i say we were in c to c which is uh about 40 minutes from st george so um it was in between the two of us or the two locations essentially so yeah we rode through through part of it for a training ride which was which was awesome so some remarkable um scenery around there and it's just the landscape is phenomenal 
Yeah, yeah. Utah is probably one of the most underrated like outdoor states uh, in the U.S. In my opinion, there's so much good stuff out there in terms of you know seeing some scenery, mountain passes, and things like that. So good for you for having a great race and enjoying your time there. And and uh, hopefully you'll get back sooner rather than later for another go. Yeah, hopefully we'll uh, we'll have to see what happens uh, after after Kona or in the future years as to to what happens. But I I, I definitely wouldn't, as I say, we talked before, I, w- I wouldn't rule it out. Cool. Um, finally, if you want to share with the listeners uh, where they can find you, uh, like website, social media, and that stuff, then kind of keep track of what you're up to. Feel free to let us know where where you're active online. Yeah, perfect. Um, yeah, Instagram, uh, reasonably active. Um, the website there at uh, com, and, and on Facebook, um, as well. Perfect. Well, I will definitely put that stuff in the show notes so listeners can link right over and check out what Matt's up to. Definitely put a tab in your computer to follow him at Kona this year. It's going to be exciting to see what he does at the big one. And uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy Hawaii as much as you did uh, the the St. George surrounding areas in Utah. But um, thanks a bunch, Matt, for taking some time out of your out of your morning and likely your training to come and chat with me for a bit about your approach. Absolutely. Hey, thank you so much for having me and uh, we look forward to connecting in the future. Awesome. Take care, Matt. Cheers. Hey folks, thanks for checking out this episode of the podcast. For those of you who are regular listeners, you'll likely know I'm also a professional endurance athlete and coach. If you're looking for a little extra help with your training and programming, I do offer individualized coaching options where you can work directly with me one-on-one. I'll personalize your plan and even scale it up to email collaboration and regular consultations. You can also access either of those on their own if you just want to contact me as you're navigating your fitness journey. I also have some ready-made plans. The ready-made plans follow my coaching philosophy and they scale from five kilometers all the way up to 100 miles and come in three different levels. So whether you're a beginner, intermediate or advanced, I've got something for you there. And most recently, I also just added a strength athlete's guide to endurance program, which will help someone who is primarily a strength athlete who wants to either do an endurance event for the fun of it, bolster up their cardiovascular fitness, or just try something out, try something new. So those programs are built to be able to supplement a strength program so you won't have to give up on your gains in the gym while you're going after some running or endurance-related fitness goals. You can find all those things on my website at zachbitter.com. Thanks for checking out this episode. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter.